Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is not May. It is June the 6th, 2022, and uh, it's a Monday, starting the week, starting the week with a really interesting show about a subject very close to my heart. Um, for those of you who uh, read one of my books, The Internet Is Not The Answer, um, my family was in the fabric business and the name of their company was V Falbers and Sons, known commercially as Falbers Fabrics. So I grew up around fabrics for people watching. Here's um, a picture of me in front of the old family office at the bottom of Berwick Street in Soho in London. Um, where we used to do business. Uh, so the issue of fabric has always been very close to my heart. I never much wanted to go into the commercial business, but I've also always found it an intriguing and, I guess, uh, emotional business. Uh, it comes up from time to time in the show. Last week, we did one with the American writer Hopewood Dupree, who um, bought an old family estate near Manchester and rebuilt it. Uh, Manchester, of course, is the town, perhaps more than any others, that uh, revolutionized the textile industry by mechanizing it, producing the foundations of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, later today, I'm going to do a show with the screenwriter, Abby Morgan. Uh, one of her uh, movies, one of her best movies that she wrote is Brick Lane, uh, which is in part a, a film about how work gives dignity, particularly to women, particularly to women who aren't particularly empowered in any other way. Fabric is a, a, a complex subject. There is, if you like, a hidden history of it um, on lots of levels. And I'm thrilled that my guest today, Victoria Finley, um, who is an, a very eclectic historian, travel writer, writer on technology and on labor, has a new book out, Fabric, the Hidden History of the Material World. And she's joining me from Bath today, where, as it happens, my family's business, Falbers Fabrics, had a retail store back in the 1970s. Um, I know you've only been in uh, Bath since the, the early 2000s, Victoria, but the fabric business um, is out of fashion, isn't it? At least the, the fashion fabric business. People don't make their own clothes anymore, at least commercially in the West. Is that fair? It's sort of fair. I mean, there seems to have been there seems to have been a big revival during lockdown of people making their own fabrics, not commercially, but also printing fabrics. Um, people, it's expensive. It's expensive if you're printing fabrics, but nevertheless, I think that I think you're right. But I also think that it's not absolutely lost and i think that there's a revival of interest these things are really expensive if they're handcrafted um i suppose particularly if they're handcrafted in the west uh, in the global north but um i don't know it's an extraordinary story of fabric how it was made from the beginning how it was um and i i i 
I don't know. I'm looking forward to discussing that, to discussing whether it's lost or not. The I've, we've got um, uh, some friends who who hand print, hand screen print um, fabric and and um, wallpapers using um, using their own designs, and um, you probably wouldn't get masses of area, but people buy cushions and things like that. Um, yeah, and my my point wasn't that fabric is no longer important is if anything as you say it's more important people love color people love the idea of making stuff it's just that the the mass retailing of of of, of fabric uh shops fabric retailers like my family's felber's fabrics at least in the west people don't make their own clothes although you as you say there's an increasingly popular cottage industry of it um particularly on networks like Etsy. You begin, um, in, in your book, in a, in a way, um, Victoria, it's very much about labor. You begin, of all places, in Moscow um, on the 75th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution in uh, Maneznaya uh, Square. What, why did you begin this book um, with, uh, with an incident um, on the 75th anniversary of Bolshevism, which, of course more than any other revolution, was a celebration of labor and particularly of uh, labor workers in industries like the textile business? I was I was thinking, of, obviously, fabric is fabric. We're all wearing it. We all do it. But I was thinking about the occasions where you look at fabric and it gives you a sort of clue as to the person that's wearing it, the person that's selling it, the person that chose it. It gives a clue. And it made me think that as I was trying to kind of unravel for myself what I was exploring in terms of fabric, I just remembered back to an incident. I, I was I was a rookie journalist, really. I, I, I was 25. I'd just arrived in Hong Kong. For some amazing reason, I got a job to go to Moscow um, on one of the first Aeroflot flights since the Soviet Union fell. Um, and it was, it, was, it was a time when it looked like Russia, the new Russia was going to go one of two ways. Either it was going to be kind to its people or probably more likely it was going to be a land of really extremes. And there was the 75th anniversary of the Soviet um, of the Soviet Revolution. And yet it was the first time this wasn't a proper anniversary. And I found myself with a great big an old-fashioned camera, you know, one of the ones you had to keep warm, it wasn't digital, and I it was very, very cold. And I we didn't know what was going to happen. Red Square, which was the place it should have been, was closed. We were in Manejnia, just next door, and we were all looking around. It was really crowded, 20,000, 20, as it says on, on in, in the thing that you just pulled up. And I heard a noise behind, the, 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 the opposite direction to the one that we were all facing. And I just kind of, with, with this, this camera, I kind of ran, and I saw that there were soldiers hold, holding, holding the line, and I just dipped underneath before they connected. And I found myself, to my surprise, in this square that was now quite empty. And towards me were 
people who had mostly men, some women who had been in the services, who'd been in the in the in the army and the navy looking from their uniforms. And I had this kind of great big zoom. And so I zoomed into them and I could sort of see I found it very tender really. I, I their clothes were patched. Their, their sleeves were, were broken. It looked like somebody had been, I could, you could see in great detail, it looked like somebody had been hand-making them. And somehow, and I talked earlier to a woman, Valentina, I still remember after so many years, her name was Valentina, and she couldn't afford bread. Um, week on her, on her pension, she couldn't afford bread. So it was very clear that there was trouble. And I, for me, it, it was symbolized by those fabrics by the clothes that people no longer could afford to buy new that they had to patch and there was a sort of sense of, of attention um, and for me it just explained really why i wanted to look at fabric why I yeah it's, it's a lovely image to begin a book um these people wearing frayed clothes a failed idea failed people essentially demonstrating not even sure how to demonstrate in a disappearing world. And they had uh, been guess, promised something, hadn't they? Whether we, whether one agrees with the politics that had promised them that right. or not, these people had worked probably honestly believing that they would be looked after and they weren't going to be looked after. And I, I just found myself crying to my surprise. I wasn't a crier. I'm not really a crier, but I found myself actually with tears running down my cheeks for what was going to be the future. Now, what's interesting about the book, um, Victoria, is the hidden history of the material world. You use a zoom lens, of course, to look at those pensioners uh, in Red Square um, uh, in 1992, as Russia was, or the Soviet Union was about to transition into Russia. But it's also a more personal zoom. The book is, seems to be dominated by your relationship in particular with your mother, uh, uh, you're, you're talking to me from Bath. You begin in Bath with the conversation you had with her mother, just with your mother, just before you died. So you're, and again, uh, excusing the, the rich, the, the use of all these fabric-like metaphors here, you weave your parents, particularly your mother, into the book. She is the, the central color in the book. Is that fair? It is fair. And actually, I don't think we can help but do knitting and weaving. We just can't help it in terms of our metaphors. So, so let's forgive ourselves in advance. Yeah, we can yes. weave, we can knit, we can do all sorts of things. <laughs> my mother, my dear mother, um, she, in the beginning, the, the book was suggested to me as a book that I might like to do. And since I had really thought about it many years before, when I'd written books on colour and jewels, and I thought that fabric was one of the ones that I could Thank you. I could do. Um, when a publishing company in the UK suggested that I might like to do something on fabric, of course, I was tempted because it was it's an extraordinary, exciting subject. But my mother was 81. She was looking after my father, who had had a terrible stroke and he was getting he was getting harder and harder to look after. And he was getting closer and closer, to be honest, to dying. And um, and I couldn't be a good daughter and do a book like this. I mean, it's, it's, here it is. It's huge. You can see how fat it is. And it has journeys to, I don't know, a dozen places or more. And I knew that that was going to have to happen. And I couldn't do both. So my mother said, oh, don't do, don't say no just yet. And she 
said, because obviously my father was going to be um, was going to be dying soon. And my father, who had dementia, but nevertheless some kind of quality of, of understanding on occasion, he said, don't say no just yet. I will soon die. And um, my mother came up to Bath from Devon, which is about two hours away, and she got um, a very rare uh, time, a time for somebody to look after my father uh, full time. And um, we went to a show at the American Museum in Bath, which um, if if anybody listening knows the American Museum in Bath, it's in a wonderful sort of stately home type um, type house on the hill above. It's really splendid. And um, it has amazing textiles. And it had a show called Hatched, Matched, Dispatched and Patched, obviously, about the kind of key textiles at, at the points of of change in our lives at the point of a transition in our or our children's lives and um, in the final room in the funeral room there was a very bright red patchwork quilt and it had it was quite quite violent colored it had it had red bright scarlet red and in fact kind of like if, we, if you look at this it had sort of this color the the color of of Penelope's dress and then this sort of deep dark um red underneath um and it had been made by a woman who ada jones in wales uh, sort of just just before the first world war and she had had a friend come and visit and she had been grieving but the friend had 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 helped her through many things i'm sure but together they've made this patchwork and my mother said we could make a patchwork we when patrick when your father dies maybe we can do that because people come to the house and maybe it'll be kind of nice to sort of say make a patch for our patchwork and then we would have something to do together it would be community and then we both laughed because it was going to be the worst patchwork in the world my mother had been had had not had a, a loving adult of any kind actually in her life she, she her parents had died when she was little and she had been brought up by some quite strict aunts so she hadn't learned these skills that actually we both longed to learn but we hadn't learned them so between us, we would make the worst patchwork in the world. And that, well, we, when we told my father that that's what we do, he laughed. He thought that was, ah, we felt something had been solved. And then my mother died. She died very suddenly. She was really fit. Um, I was in India and she just had a horrendous um, subarachnoid hemorrhage. And, and so, when my father died three months later, right through that period and long afterwards, I was like, Ma, where are you? I want to make the patchwork with you. And obviously it was, it, we talked about metaphors before. It's not really a metaphor. It's just a way of trying to make the tough things to think about, trying to make them physical, trying to kind of put them into words. And I found myself putting it into words like that. And I thought, all right, I will write this this fabric book. It'll cheer me up. I mean, actually, it took five years, and I'm not sure that cheered up is the um, is the feeling. But it did intrigue me, and it was an extraordinary book to write. And some of the things I expected to find, but many of the things were just thrilling to uncover. Yeah, I like the idea, Victoria, of passing down this wisdom from generation to generation. You talk about that a lot in the book. My wife is a an active weaver and uh, her family's from Mississippi and she's been very much influenced by the quilts of G G's Bend in Alabama. I know you you went to Alabama and, and this is one of the most memorable chapters in your book. They're not explicitly political 
the quilters of G's Bend, but there obviously is a deep politics to it, given the history of injustice in Alabama when it comes to race. Perhaps you might talk a little bit about your trip to G's Bend and, and the significance of that in terms of the book and the meaning of fabric. The, um, the, the My visit to G's Bend comes almost at the end of the book. Um, the other chapters are very much about um, each type of fabric, linen, cotton, bark cloth, um, silk, sackcloth. But the final, the penultimate chapter is about a journey to G's Bend because although right through the patchwork as book has been a metaphor, at this point it actually became actual. Uh, G's Bend is, it's in the bend of a river. It um, It's on former plantations, cotton plantations, and many of the people who live there still had predecessors who were slaves in that area. Um, it was in the, even now it's not a wealthy place, but in, in, in the 1930s, it was extremely poor. In the Depression, a lot of sharecroppers, um, and a lot of them, as things got more expensive in that awful recession, they borrowed to buy the uh, to buy the seeds for this next year and they borrowed money and the man who lent the money died his widow sent the bailiffs in didn't give them a chance the bailiffs took everything that could be carried away it was an it's an appalling story in a time of appalling stories and um it was cold it gets cold in alabama and um they made uh, quilts out of everything that they could possibly make quilts. And some of them were that you, you, you showed a picture before, just this sort of extraordinary aesthetic, I suppose. It was mm. done out of need. But and some of them now, I mean, it's become an art form. Uh, there we Cincinnati go. The yeah. Museum, for example, has exhibit of the women's of G's Ben. So this went from being very much of a folk business of very poor people into a, a, a high art form in the early 21st century. Yeah, it was it, some of the some of the old quilts were found, and they were seen as a high art form. And one of the things, I mean, many things. It it it, it isn't political, and yet it is a time for speaking about political stories. The the whole civil rights movement um, was very much there. In in fact, G's Bend is in um, a bend in the river. It's a it's quite a big river. It has a ferry, and um, when um, African Americans were given the vote in the 1960s the place for voting was across the river and that ferry was stopped and it was stopped until really quite recently um, so that's kind of politics um, one of the extraordinary so I, I went and I hadn't as I said learned how to sew learned how to use sewing machines properly and I was scared of sewing and I asked whether I could possibly have lessons and Marianne Petway who was in the in the community center at the time she said oh she doesn't do lessons and um but she said tell me your story so I told her my story about my mother and about not being able to do it and how I hadn't ever learned and she said okay she said when I was six years old my mother taught me the nine pack I'll teach you and actually I spent the week there I'd, I'd have a lesson in the morning and then 
there was a spare sewing machine so she let me play I, I also so I, I learned how to unpick quite well and I'm just going to show you this not because I think it's an astonishingly um, artistic form but this is this was my sampler that I'll, I'll I, so for those who, who can watch it's a sampler it's a, it's about I don't know it's about this it's it's about the size of my of my um my I uh, my computer screen it um we have courthouse steps uh, we have the nine patch and we have um prison bars and in each of them uh, what Marianne showed me she not only showed me the kind of the basics of how to use the sewing machine and how to put things together but also she showed me how to incorporate and I found this really powerful how to incorporate um imperfection into into art into into craft how to how to do imperfections so that for her and for me I I, I agreed it was so much more beautiful so there's there's one of the prison bars let me just show it to you here it is um and there we go it's at the bottom one of the prison bars which is parallel lines has actually got a diagonal um of a different color mm. in it and uh, Marianne said she didn't like the um the evenness even random uh, random evenness she said why don't you just put a put a put a diagonal in it'll it'll be happier there and uh, so I I I learned then not only the practicality that frankly I'm sure almost everybody watching this who's ever done patchwork knows knows already but we were sitting there um, sometimes we'd listen to a documentary that just played and played and played until you almost stopped listening to it um, and it was there for any visitors but sometimes um, if there weren't any visitors and it was the morning uh, Marianne would just put some gospel music on and we'd just listen to that on the radio and uh, just it would be quiet and it was there would be two three four of us there and there was a sense of community that I think that people who I mean artists crafters people who make people who make while they're happy which is different from the process of some fabrics but it's there in the process of others there's a sense of meditation there's a sense of drifting away that is part of creativity and I yeah felt the making is important you you dedicate the book it's a remarkable amount of traveling you've done with this book to the amazing of Papua New Guinea the weavers of Harris of Alabama the Kenti makers of Ghana the Arjak woodblock printers of Sindh and many others you you traveled remarkably uh, in in this book you went from um, you went from New Guinea Papua New Guinea to Guatemala um, to uh, to Scotland to many other countries in the world. Oh, I'm loving the graphics, Andrew. Those yeah, are great. Uh, well, it's, it's easy given how, how much you travelled. Um, these are the. Um, I was particularly struck by the uh, the 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 uh, the Ajak, um woodblock printers of, uh, of synth was there one in addition to the 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 the, the, the g's bend um experience is there a, one particular kind of fabric in, in the one experience in the book that really stands out 
Victoria? Yes, there is, and I'll, I'll come to it, but I have a confession to make. It's not a really big confession, but it's a small confession. So I, um, when I first wrote this book, it was 200,000 words, and obviously some things had to go. And I had a very good, a very wonderful um, uh, editor um, who, she said, are there going to be Ajraks? Are there going to be the printed fabrics from Pakistan um, in her um, in the book and I said there weren't but I said Sean if you can fit a paragraph or more about Azraq printing into the book then then let's run it because it's such a lovely um, fabric and I've seen it but I, I didn't go to Pakistan to to research it so she said that she right the way through the editing process she couldn't stop thinking about whether Azraq um, printing could fit uh, but in the end she decided that actually she would have cut it out herself I mean, if, if it had been there and then she edited it yeah editors are is there a particular um what one one kind of fabric one kind of textile that if if you were just to have one one chapter in the book what would it be Bark cloth but cloth um this is, is from Papua New Guinea, right? Yeah, so this is from Papua New Guinea, and for several reasons it would be bark cloth. One, it is a most extraordinary fabric that I didn't I'd seen it before, I really didn't have an idea. I didn't know, for example, I I'd bark cloth, cloth made from bark. It's actually the inner bark of of, of a tree, of a particular tree, the paper mulberry. Um uh, the outer bark is stripped off, the inner bark is the uh, part of the organism of a tree through which the sap flows so it's actually like the lifeblood of the tree it's like the it's like the most living bit of it the core is cut out the bark is gone and then the inner bark comes out and it's about uh, it's about a hand's width uh, when it's when it's uh, unfolded from from the core and then it's beaten and it's a traditionally women's um cloth it's a traditionally um and a, this uh, is age old in papua new guinea which of course is one of the most um one of the oldest civilizations one of the civilizations most resistant to modernity yeah there's there's bark cloth right across the pacific i went to papua new guinea um and i'm sure that i could have found other communities through Papua New Guinea, for example, in Vanuatu, there there are these ancient um, drawings that were made, put onto bark cloth. Elsewhere in Papua New Guinea, you have the 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 tattoos that um, that people had on their bodies, that men had on their bodies, that were put onto bark cloth when missionaries came and and forbade people to have tattoos and go to church. In the Mycin, is it is not only is it an extraordinary piece of culture that is still living, it's still there. They use bark cloth for rituals, men and women, and they love their feasts. So these rituals happen quite a lot within the church as well as in traditional feasting for, for people. Um, they also exchange them. Um, and right now, I think the most important thing of this bark cloth and the reason that I'm holding up not just a piece of bark cloth, but actually a bag that was made on a sewing machine in um, in a Mycin village with no electricity. It was made on a hand sewing machine because while 
They are living a fairly traditional life. There are big logging conglomerates from Malaysia and Indonesia right now that are trying to buy the uh, the forest land behind them. These great tracts of virgin forest in which the oldest, uh, in which the largest butterfly in the world lives, in which there are all their own traditional hunting grounds in which there are huge amounts of biodiversity and many trees. They're trying to fell them, make them into whatever, toilet paper, whatever they try and make them into. And the only reason that the mycin have been able to afford not to sell their forest to exchange it for schooling and for medicine is because bark cloth, they've been selling it, they have got money and it's been it's it's giving them it's giving them and the forest a future and for that i think although you could argue that many of the fabrics are more important in terms of uh, cotton being uh, the most the masses of cotton being made i just think it symbolizes how fabrics can save communities well that's one of the stories um in uh, in victoria's wonderful new book fabric um the Hidden History of the Material World. Congratulations on the book, Victoria. It took you five years, a very personal book. You've done a lot of traveling. What else are you reading? Anything else? <laughs> well, I've just been reading um, a book that uh, called Birdsong um, in a Time of Silence. And it um, it's, it's an astonishing book about birdsong written by somebody who in Wales, um, Stephen Lovett, who spent his lockdown listening to birdsong and it's got extraordinary details. I mean, it's got details like, for example, Mozart had a pet starling and it's got all of those details, but also it's made me, I'm reading it really slowly because it's made me really look and listen. So this morning I just sat drinking my cup of tea um, outside and I was trying to listen to what Stephen's been listening to, which is the communications and trying to really slow down. And he said that if you slow down yourself, you can actually hear so much more and you can hear the individual birds. I haven't quite got down to that. So I've been listening to that. I've also been reading um, a book called The Shadowy Third, Elizabeth Bowen, favorite writer, um, Julia Parry and uh, Julia's um Julia's grandfather had an affair with Elizabeth Bowen, the, the, the great novelist and short story writer. And she inherited um, a plastic bag full of the, the letters between the two of them. And she made it into this extraordinary epic where she journeyed to the place they came from. And um, the shadowy third really was her grandmother, who, um, who was the third, or could have been the, her grandfather, grand, mother could have been the third or the or Elizabeth Bowen could have been the third but either way there were three in that marriage and um, it's a very moving book 